Good morning. My name is Chris Rojas. I'm one of the elders here at Church of the Canyons. Um, it was a great honor and privilege, and um, we as the elders take it very seriously, um, this, this uh, calling um, that you have affirmed. So we thank you, and uh, we, we look forward to doing great things together as a family. Uh, before we open God's word this morning, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the reason there is anything good. You are good, and you are the very essence of goodness. Anything that is detached from you is evil, and we acknowledge that this is a dark world. Having been contaminated by the disobedient act of the first man, Adam, this world is plagued with brokenness, disease, confusion, and death. These are things that are not of you. They are just consequences of Adam's sin, and it has been passed down generation after generation. These are just consequences of ours as well, as we are guilty of willful disobedience. Despite this horrific condition, you show goodwill to mankind by general revelation through your creation and specific revelation through your most holy word, and even in these last days, through the word which is your son, Jesus Christ, made flesh. It is his words that we turn to this morning and pray that those who hear his word and my meditations on his word would have their hearts ready to receive what only the Holy Spirit can do, and that is transformation and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Please bless this gathering as we exalt you through the dependency on your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And amen. So this morning... Uh, <clears throat> We're focusing on the, on the text of Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. You can turn there. Um, and uh, while you're turning there, for those of you who are just joining us, um, we're, we're, we're currently going through a study of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is a, a, a sermon that was given from Jesus to his disciples. And uh, it's spread over three chapters of the Bible, um, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, we, are, uh, we learn, and there's clarity brought to um, the nature of a kingdom citizen. Um, a kingdom citizen is anybody who has willfully bowed their knee uh, on this side of heaven's gate uh, before the Lord and accepted him as their king, sovereign king. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we get to know what the reward is for, our, for being a kingdom citizen, um, we also get to know how a kingdom citizen is to think, also how not to think. Uh, we get to see how a kingdom citizen is to act and also not to act. And we're given some strong warnings about those who seek to profiteer from a false righteousness as those, those who are enemies of the church mimic what God prescribes that only this, the Holy Spirit can bless as true religion. So hopefully you found Matthew 6, 9, and 10. And uh, we, let's go ahead and read that text. It says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's Matthew 6, 9 through 10. So our text begins with a directive from Jesus to pray, followed by then. So the word then could also be translated therefore. And anybody who's been in this church for a little while knows when you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what's it? Therefore, right? 
<laughs> and so that causes us to look back just a little bit. And so in verses 5 through 8, we learn three valuable things from Jesus Christ about prayer. Um, and I took some time to meditate on this, on these words of God, which are, are the prelude to what uh, most refer to as the Lord's Prayer. We know that this is actually not the Lord's Prayer. This is God giving a prayer through Jesus to the disciples as an outline, and that it is, it is actually the disciples' prayer. So I summarize these three points that I, I want to quickly run by you, but before I do, I have to warn you um, that this sermon is peppered with peas. <laughs> so if you're in the first two rows, like you are in the designated splash zone, and I did not bring ponchos for your protection. So, but let's go ahead and quickly uh, look at verses five through eight. We, we pick up in verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, that's the kingdom of citizen, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the first principle uh, I draw from verse 5, and it highlights the poorly placed prayer. Here we go. Prayer purposed for people's purview Pays with perishables. Wow. It's a lot of peas. I'll say, I'll say that again slowly. Prayer purpose for people's purview pays with perishables. Meaning that when we aim our words at man, what we can get is the honor of man and the riches of man. And that is something that is corrupted because it comes from someone who is corrupted. And these gains will not stand the test of time. This is the prayer that is poorly placed. The second principle draws from verse 6 and highlights the properly placed prayer. Here we go. Prayer purposed for powerful provision pays in perfection. That's a lot. I'll say it again. Prayer purpose. Are you, are you dry over here? Are we, Prayer purpose for powerful provision pays in perfection. Meaning that when we aim our words to, uh, to, to be received by God and asking him what he can give, we can receive something that is incorruptible because it comes from some one who is incorruptible. And these gains can stand the test of time. That is prayer that is properly placed. The last principle draws from verse 7 and 8. I'll say that, uh, here we go. Precision in prayer prompts the patient provider's plan. Here it goes. One more time for our note takers. Precision in prayer prompts the patient provider's plan. Meaning that the one to whom we are praying is an omniscient being who sees at once the beginning and the end, and everything in between. God does not need to be convinced of the heart of man, nor does he need to be convinced of the need of man. 
He provides an open pathway of communication through prayer so that his children's hearts can be aligned with the will of God. So I'd like you to keep your finger in Matthew 6, that is our main text for this morning, and flip back all the way to Genesis chapter 18. So get those pages rustling. And my intent here is to show you an example of precision in prayer that prompts the patient provider's plan. This is the account of Abraham when he pled with God regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I super glued my Bible today. It's falling apart. They say a, a man who has a Bible that's falling apart has a life that's put together. I'm trying, people. Well, by the Lord's grace. All right. Hopefully you're there at Genesis 18. And I'm having trouble reading, so I'm going to read to my script here. Uh, <clears throat> here we go. Chapter, uh, ch- chapter 18, verse 23. It says, Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is Abraham's pra- prayer of petition to God. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29, he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Verse 30, then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. Verse 31, and he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of 20. And then he said, Abraham says, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. Suppose, where are we here? Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. I want you to skip over to chapter 19 now and look at verse 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. He's looking for the answer prayer. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. So here you see the directness of Abraham to God and how God was patient to hear Abraham. God allowed Abraham to express his heart in earnest plea, asking more and more of God. 
And God did not become angry with Abraham, but helped Abraham through Abraham's pleas to understand that God's plan was to provide punishment for a people who had nothing but open hatred to God. And God had perfect perspective. And Abraham's pleas prompted God's plan, which included convincing Abraham that God is just. See how that works? And notice the resolve of Abraham when he saw the remains in the city that morning as he eagerly arose to see his answered prayer. He was resolved. It says nothing. Please turn back to Matthew 6, where we re-engage with our main text. So this prelude of 5 through 8 leads us into our text where we are, we are to examine what this directive of pray means. So the word pray is made up of two words. The Greeks do this all the time. They, they take two big concept words and put it together. And the word uh, begins with the word prose, which means towards and an exchange. And, uh, it, and it, it, if the second half of it is eukomai. And I don't speak Greek, so if, if you're Greek and I just butchered your language, I apologize. Um, but it, that word means to wish and to pray. And, uh, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I rely on those who are. And the Strong's Concordance says that this word literally means to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes or ideas for his wishes as he imparts faith or a divine persuasion. And here in verse 9, Jesus gives a directive to pray, bearing in mind verses 5 through 8, highlighting the poorly placed prayer, the properly placed prayer, and the preferred precision of prayer. He then moves on to demonstrate what, what prayer ought to look like in this outline that we are studying this morning. And our first point that we're, that we're making is uh, that we pray to our patriarch. We pray to our patriarch. Did you know that in the Bible, there's 950 names or titles of God? Some of those are more well-known than others because um, we, don't, we don't speak Hebrew for the most part. Um, but some of these have translated through. And uh, I'll, I'll just kind of read off a few of them. Elohim, meaning God. It's, it's a plural form of God. And it's the first mention of God. We see this in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Elohim. We see Yahweh, meaning I am. That's the name that God gave Moses when he said, who should I say sent me? Adonai, meaning Lord, the supreme and ultimate being. Jehovah Nisi, meaning God is my refuge. Jehovah Jireh, meaning God will provide. I have a really good song about that. Jehovah Rapha, meaning God heals. Jehovah Shammah, meaning God is there. Jehovah Sabbath, meaning the Lord of hosts. Yeshua, meaning God is our salvation. El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty. And El Elyon, meaning most high. These are just a few of the 950 names and titles of God that we find in the Bible. And of all these names, Jesus, the true son of God, instructs his disciples to refer to God, his father, 
as our father. Not the 949 names in this outline. He says, address him as our father. That's special. That's marvelous. It could have been the conqueror. It could have been the, the, the vindicator. It could have been the, 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 the punisher. I mean, it could have been so many, the creator. It could have been, it could have been something distant, far. But no, it's our father. So what does this tell us about the one who receives our prayers? It tells us of his desire for us and his regard of us. It tells us that not only is the first person of the Godhead relational, but he regards kingdom citizens as a father would a son. How special is that? How awe-striking is that? I'd like to stop for just a moment and just consider the significance of a father in a household. And since we're instructed to address our prayers to God and refer to him as our father, we should know what that says about him in light of fatherhood. Sometimes when defining something, it helps to actually take a situation that, that uh, has that element in it and remove it and see what happens. In this case, I did a quick search on the internet and, uh, and just for some statistics of fatherless homes. And I have to warn you, these are uh, both eye-opening and, and painful to hear. So on, on the website, lifeisbeautiful.org, I learned that 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Most of these come from uh, the uh, Department of Justice. 39% of students in the United States from the first from first grade to their senior year of high school, do not have a father at home. And children without a father are four times more likely to be living in poverty than children with a father. Girls who live in a fatherless home have a 100% higher risk of suffering from obesity than girls who have their father present. Teen girls from fatherless homes are also four times more likely to become mothers before the age of 20. 75% of rapists are motivated by displaced anger that is associated with feelings of abandonment that involves their father. That's from the U.S. Department of Justice. Living in a fatherless home is is the contributing factor of substance abuse, with children from such homes accounting for 75% of adolescent patients being treated in a substance abuse center. 85% of all children which exhibits some type of behavioral disorder, come from a fatherless home. 90% of youth in the United States who decide to run away from home or become homeless for any reason originally came from a fatherless home. 63% of youth suicides involve a child who is living in a fatherless home when they made that final decision. Children who live in a fatherless home are 279% more likely to deal drugs or carry firearms for offensive purposes compared to children who live with their fathers. And the last one, there's so many more. 24.7 million children in the United States live in a home where their biological father is not present. That equates to one in every three children in the United States not having access to their father. How much clearer can it be of how essential a father is to the home? So I want to put a plug in 
here for you men of Church of the Canyons and abroad to all the church, Big C Church, prayerfully be on the lookout for younger males who need a father figure and consider being that person in their life. For believers, what this looks like is discipleship. But that person who provides the example of the image, um, that child will seek to grow into that image. And for those ladies who find themselves rearing a child alone, I can only encourage you to lean into the church, the family of God. He has made it clear in James 1.27 that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. God has provided a family for you in the church. For those single ladies, I, I just beg you, attend church as much as possible and don't be shy about expressing your needs. God will provide for your son or your daughter by bringing examples of men who your sons will strive to become. For your daughters, they will have value instilled in them. They will see that there, are, there is protection. They will see that there's a, they're treasured and they will they will look at those men who are running the church as models for who they should marry later down the road. So by having touched on the effects of this rampant condition of fatherless homes in the United States, it should give us insight into what God knows we need. And that's what he has provided. We need a substitute for what our earthly patriarch, Adam, provided us, which was an inheritance of brokenness, disease, confusion, and death. Through his one disobedient act, he severed us from God the Father's holiness. And here, in the prayer that Jesus gives to us as a model, he, Jesus gives us license. He gives us license to call his father our father. If a, few, if a human father in the home can prevent those terrible results that I just shared with you, how much greater can God as our father provide an eternal stability, eternal health, eternal wellness of mind, body, and soul, eternal life, and best of all, among many other things, an eternal relationship with our eternal Father who is in heaven. So Jesus uses these words next. This prayer to our patriarch is directional. It is aimed at heaven. Jesus is wanting to, us to know that he knows where God the Father is. This is a personal testimony of his personal understanding of where he came from. And listen to, to uh, John 6, 32 through 33. You don't need to turn there, but you can if you want. Depends how quick you are. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the true bread of God 
we are being told with all certainty that Jesus is our connection to God the Father. It was the Father who purposed for Christ to fulfill the Father's plan to redeem a people of his own through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, his Son. So that's our first point in 9b, that we pray to our patriarch. That's wonderful. And next we see in 9c, the point of prayer. So Jesus goes on to say that after addressing our Father who is in heaven, our first thought should be, as you read it in the text, hallowed be your name. So the word hallow is not a common word. We don't use that every day. Don't, so don't feel bad if it's foreign to you. Uh, it means to treat as holy or to sanctify. Uh, it means to set apart. Uh, so we're, we're to set God's name apart from the status of any other name. We're never to use God's name loosely by flagrantly blurting it out. Understanding that using God's name is precious to him. He esteems his name. As a child of his, our identity is found in his name. His name is representative of his person. In this model prayer, glorifying God the Father is at the top of the list. Maybe you might ask, why is it at the top of the list? That's a good question. I want you to keep your finger in Matthew and jump over to John. We're going to stay there for just a moment. We're going to spend, a, uh, we're, going to, we're going to see why this is such a highly prioritized point of prayer. John 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we're going to go to verse 31. And 32. The context of this is that the disciples are in the upper room with Jesus. Judas Iscariot has just left the room to go betray our Lord. It reads, verse 31, Therefore, when he had gone out, that's Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, that's Jesus, in himself. And will glorify him, that's Jesus, immediately. So Jesus here is prophesying about his death on the cross. He's going to the cross to accomplish the will of his father. In this humble obedience, there's a mutual glorification that starts with Jesus glorifying his father and moves to the father glorifying him. So the reason Christ leads us to hallow the name of God as of first importance in our prayers is because that was Christ's mission. Recall John 3.16. Some of our Awana people, Presley, Wyatt, dude, I miss you guys. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so love the world that he, God, gave his son, Jesus. You see, Jesus came down here on account of God the Father. 
This was God the Father's will that Christ would die for us. It was Christ's humble submission to God the Father that accomplished the plan of redemption. But it was the Father's will and it was for the Father's glory. So you, you, you don't have to turn there. Some of you know this by heart. But Philippians 2, verse 8 and 11, you can turn there. I'll give you a second to do that if you'd like. Philippians 2, verse 8 and 11. This is known as the Kenoisis prayer or uh, passage. Being found in appearance as a man, he, that's Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and pay attention to this next little part. To the glory of, guess who? God the Father. You see, Christ's mission was fully set on glorifying God the Father. The entirety of his mission is wrapped up in it. So, hallow his name. (laughs) That's why it's the top of the list. But it doesn't end there. Skip over to John 14, verse 13. Here, he's still in the upper room with his disciples. And Jesus says to them, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Yet again, there it is. Now Jesus is saying that we are being brought into this picture of glorification. This verse indicates that we are involved through prayer in God the Father being glorified through God the Son. And we're doing a little exercise here. You always get this with me. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. John 17, please turn there. I want to show you something about the Father being glorified by the Son and the Son being glorified by the Father in the Father's self. And just a side note, as you turn there, it's interesting that our text today, uh, it's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but John 17 is actually the longest of the actual Lord's Prayer. What we get in in Matthew 6 is the disciples' prayer. Uh, It's also in Luke. But here... Jesus does what we call the high priestly prayer where he prays to God for his disciples. It says in verse 11 and 12, I'm no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. That's 11 and 12. So as Jesus prays this high priestly prayer, he prays it in such a way that he's actually projecting himself into eternity. As if all the work has been accomplished. And you can hear him saying that in the name of God, Christ has been honored. So much so that he carries the name of God as the true son of God. And Jesus says here that we, kingdom citizens, those who have bent their knee willfully on this side of heaven's gate to accept Jesus Christ as the king, sovereign Lord of their life, 
We, we are secured and wrapped up in the name of God. He goes on to say in verse 22 and 23, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. This glory or honor that the Father gives to Christ because of his humble obedience will be translated to us as well. It will have a perfect result in causing us to be unified just as much as God the Father and God the Son are unified. By hallowing or setting apart or sanctifying or glorifying God's, God the Father's name, we give glory to all that he planned and, and accomplished. And that's why this is at the top of the list. It was the utmost of Christ's ministry to glorify his father. So a little side note. So we, t- we touched on a few things here. And, and that we have sonship through the perfected plan of God the father. We will be glorified as Christ is glorified in the, in, by his humble obedience. We are secured in the hallowed name of God the Father, and we are designed to be perfected in unity. So with that said, I have a few questions. These are challenging questions, but they're designed for you and for all believers. Why do we see children of God who have this shared inheritance grumble with one another or behind each other's backs. We're called to perfect unity. Why is it that we can't approach our brother or sister considering these truths and promises? God's promises never fail. Why why can't we strive to be unified in heart and mind Why is it that we can't let our guard down with one another and bring to light difficulties or weaknesses that we have? Why can't we lean into this perfect harmony that God has presented to us by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son, the mighty work that is finished? Why can't we lean into that confidence with one another? Why do we allow for disunity when we hold the guarantee of a perfect unity? Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a segue to what Christ outlines next, but I want to tell you very plainly, if you have an issue with a brother or sister, no matter their position, no matter their gender, no matter the prolonged duration of an offense. Let there be nothing to stop you from humbly pursuing unity. I urge you for the sake of the name of God the Father, pursue unity directly and swiftly. Do not harbor ill will. Make short accounts of grievances by forgiving one another in love. Let's take a minute uh, just for a prayer. Lord, we're we're not done this morning yet. We have some more work to do. And and boy, this is so 
beautiful. I love to treasure your word. It, it, it never returns void. It's so rich. We will never exhaust the depths of it. And you presented this to us. You provided this to us. You, you have brought us to a, a, a family where we, we participate in a shared co-heir inheritance that your son has received as a first fruit. All of these things are promised to us. Lord, give us a proper perspective in our hearts and minds as we look at our brother and sister, not as bodies, but as kingdom citizens, our brother, our sister, ourself. Lord, let us treasure one another. Let us put aside those things that hinder us those fears that grip us. You've told us you don't give us a spirit of fear. That's what we were born with. That's our inheritance from Adam. You've given us a spirit of power, of love, and of discipline. Lord, please reign supremely in your church to ward out these fleshly ideals that we cling to. They are not a support. They are a hindrance. And Lord, please work mightily so that we may grow your kingdom. It is our privilege to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I pray, that, I pray that, that my prayer is your prayer. Let's return to Matthew 6. So our first point was that we pray to our patriarch. That's in 9b. Secondly, we saw the point of prayer. That's in 9c. Hallowed be thy name. And next we see the pertinent procession of prayer. In verses 10a, b, and part of c. Again, this next point is the pertinent procession of prayer. Our text reads, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. We're going to stop there. So here Jesus brings to the outline a proper perspective of the kingdom citizen. Namely, that the current state of this world is not the end goal and never will be. We had spoken earlier about this world being corrupted through the one act of disobedience from Adam. That this world is broken, diseased, it is confused, and death is its master. We refer to our Heavenly Father who promises eternal peace and an unbreakable relationship with him in eternity for an eternal perfection. We as kingdom citizens need to be right-minded as we go before our Father in prayer and gear our prayers appropriately. Not with the intent of, here's some peace, promoting what brings us pleasure on this planet, but what would pave the path of perfect persuasion, which is faith in God. This eternal perfection is not accomplished by creating kingdoms of mankind. It is accomplished with a transformed mind that God calls for our Father's kingdom to be the focus of. Sorry, I ended it with of. Valerie, hate me now. <laughs> so grammatically incorrect. But it's true. Look, I, I love America. I couldn't be prouder of my son Mason who's enlisted into the army reserves. He, 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 hopefully he becomes a, a, a paratrooping chaplain. I don't even know what that looks like. 
We're, like, we're thinking he's going to jump out of planes with, uh, with, with Sunday bulletins, handing them off, saying, service starts at 10, not 10, 15, people. Hint, hint. As much as I love America, and I hope that you do too, Jesus is telling us that we need to be mindful and be aligned with God the Father's kingdom far more than America or any other kingdom of mankind. Our prayer, which is an unceasing prayer, must follow this pertinent procession of envisioning God's kingdom expanding. And I'll give you a good example uh, of one of our elders. And I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to embarrass you. It is a thing. Uh, so uh, Matt and Christy just recently bought a home. And it was unsuitable. So they, they invested a lot of uh, time, uh, treasures, and talents to, to make it right. But not for fancy tastes, even though it is tasteful. Um, I remember standing at the, on the balcony looking down at the, at the living room. And I, and I heard Matt express his heart. And it told me he got it. He said, I can't wait to see a Bible study. That's, that's it. Matt and Christy get it. And I've seen that attitude in so many of the people here at Church of the Canyon. And I, I, just, I just implore you, foster that. Continue that on. The next step in this pertinent procession, it's, it's fully dependent on the first one. As you in your prayer life seek the kingdom of God, the natural inclination will be that your will and God's will will align. And why is that important? It's because, dear brother and sister, to be a kingdom citizen often is accommodated, is, is accompanied by an unfavorable outcome to what we would rather have. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir on this, I know. But we can look at the Bible and recall Abraham's prayer. It wasn't a wrong prayer. But we know the outcome. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. That's not what he wanted. It wasn't a wrong prayer. Let's listen to Paul as another example of one whose attitude was aligned with the second step of this pertinent procession. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, as he's talking to God about the thorn in his flesh, if you don't know what that is, um, it was something that was given to Paul because of what God allowed Paul to see so that it would make, maintain his humility. It says in verse 8, concerning this, I, that's Paul, implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, that thorn in the flesh. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am, listen to this, well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. So let's not forget another one, just one more example of the Lord's prayer that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, verses 41 
and 42. You probably know this by heart. As he knelt down and began praying, saying, this is Jesus talking to his father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That's right. None of these prayers were wrong prayers. But given the proper perspective, the initial unfavorable outcome was trounced by faith as Abraham was resolved. As Paul was well content. And Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12, 2. This pertinent procession of a kingdom citizen's prayer life will culminate. It was, it'll, it'll conclude with Christ-like behavior that is evidenced on earth, which is the final step in the procession. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. As the kingdom citizen faithfully prays to God our Father, the inner alignment with God our Father will have a result on the way we, the kingdom citizen, impacts the world around us. You see, when you're not a kingdom citizen, you know how you, one, of the, one of the telltales is that you're dictated, your attitude and behavior is dictated by the circumstances around you. Kingdom citizens don't operate this way because we are ruled not by the external. We are ruled by the internal. God with us, Emmanuel. Our heavenly mindedness will make us earthly good. And this leads us to the last point of our morning that we will conclude on. And that's the present prototype. The present prototype. In verse 10c, Christ concludes, as it is in heaven, period. What do we know about heaven? We know that in the Bible, there are three heavens. We have first, the first heaven, which is the atmosphere that surrounds our globe. This holds the birds and the clouds and the oxygen, carbon dioxide, and other, other necessary gases. It remains intact despite the constant bombardment of meteors and intensity of the sun and chill of space. The second heaven is what contains the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, black holes, asteroids. Who knows what else is out there? The third heaven is what we refer to as the place God our Father resides in. Mankind recognizes these three as a consistent order. And man is predisposed to worship on account of these things. All cultures of all time have instinctually recognized the magnificent telling of the heavens that there is a ruler over them that causes all things to work together. Seconds, hours, days, months, years, seasons. These things are telling of divine orchestration. This is the general revelation. But you and me, kingdom citizens, have been given specific revelation. 
through his word and now in these last days through his son, Jesus Christ. So to hallow God's name, Christ, Christ glorifies his father and states unequivocally that the heavens are under God's reign. God the father, that's his heaven. The God that we have been licensed to address as our father owns and rules over these heavens. So as we pray to our patriarch and make the point of prayer to hallow his name, allowing the pertinent procession of prayer to align us with his will, we can rest assured that regardless of the outcome of our requests to God, that our father is in control. And he treasures his children, the kingdom citizens. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, you are the living God, the creator and sustainer of all life. There's none other like you. You have given to us your name to treasure as adopted children. You took what was stone and made a heart of flesh that we might be a people of your own possession. A family of orphans now made co-heirs with your true son, Jesus Christ, who is the first of mankind to be glorified as he was glorified and he did that by his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He executed your perfect plan of salvation, and we are now sealed by the Holy Spirit and his power to guarantee our place in the family of God. Why you chose to save us, we'll never know. But we glorify your Son and thereby glorify you, Almighty God, our Father. Please help us, Lord, as we can be caught up so easily in the sin that entangles. Free our minds to focus on your son's inevitable triumphal entry and the conclusion of all matters. Let our hearts worship as your son prayed with an eternal view. Let us properly perceive our brothers and sisters' needs and preferences over our own. Forgive us for our failings. And awaken our hearts and minds to active service, putting aside all that hinders. Father, may your spirit convict us with your rod and your staff. Give us paths of righteousness for your name's sake to walk down. Even though we may encounter discouragements as we submit to your will, please bless us with an immediate resolve, well contentment, and joy that can only come from willful submission to your will.